Hello, and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director at Legal Aid of West Virginia, and in this episode, we will be discussing child custody with Courtney Cluse, an attorney in our Clarksburg office. Before we get started, though, as every good attorney will tell you, you should start every time you talk with a disclaimer, so we will do that. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. This podcast is scheduled to be broadcast in July of 2022, and all information will be up to date as of that time. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law only in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes only. While our hosts and our guests are attorneys and non-attorney advocates, the information presented is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. That's always fun to do. As I noted, I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia, and in this episode, Courtney Cluse will join us and we'll talk about custody. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Clint. I'm happy to be here with you today. And which office do you work at at Legal Aid of West Virginia? I work out of the Clarksburg office, um, and I will have been here five years in October. And what work do you do in the Clarksburg office? Um, So I assist uh, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault in a variety of legal issues, which are mostly focused on family law. So divorces, child custody, guardianships is a primary area of focus for myself. And in the Clarksburg office, what's something that's fun to do around Clarksburg? I really enjoy going over to Valley Falls, which is one of our state parks here in West Virginia. Um, It's got some beautiful waterfalls, some nice picnic tables, and some nice hiking trails. So it's not too far at all from this area, and it's a very nice weekend activity. And Courtney, you're also the leader of our Family Law Task Force. What are some of the responsibilities as the the program-wide leader of our Family Law Task Force? As the task force leader, I have been taking a look at some new legislation, some of which we will be talking about today, um, coordinating the efforts with our attorneys practicing in the family law arena within our program to take a look and analyze this legislation. We try to stay up to date with different trainings um, on areas that are becoming more prevalent to really increase our knowledge in the area of family law and our, our knowledge as practitioners. Nice segue. As you noted, the legislature um, spent a lot of time working and discussing and debating and ultimately changing um, substantial portions of the family laws in West Virginia as they relate to child custody particularly. So let's just talk about a brief overview. Um, what uh, what, What are the major changes that they made? The major changes that they made, primarily the first thing that I think is important for people to know is that there is now this presumption that when you file a custody action, the court is going to presume that sharing 50-50 equal custody between parents is the starting point. Now, if a parent believes it's not appropriate to share 50-50 custody with the other parent, they do have the opportunity to rebut or challenge that presumption. So it's not something where the court doesn't have any discretion whatsoever, but parties to custody cases need to be aware that they will need to gather evidence and be prepared to present that evidence at hearings to indicate why that's not in the best interest of their child or children. So if you're a non-attorney, a presumption basically means that's what we're going to do unless something convinces us to do otherwise. So it's a starting point. It's a starting point where the court is going to start with this belief 
but based on the evidence presented, that can that can change. So we see that, for example, in in criminal law, people are familiar with there's a presumption that you're innocent, right? You're innocent until proven guilty. And what that means is we don't believe someone is guilty until we see evidence that they are. In this fa in this family court setting, what we're talking about is when the judge is looking at people knowing absolutely nothing, they would think this is probably going to be a 50-50 case. Um, and we're going to equally divide the time between the children. And then they may hear some evidence that says, no, we can't do that one. Perhaps one parent is, well, what are some of the factors that they would consider and say, no, we're not going to do that in this situation? I'm glad you asked that because there's actually so many. So I want I want parties to to be aware that while there is this presumption, there are so many different ways that you can challenge that and let the court know. So some of those would be, uh, has a party engaged in domestic violence? Um, as defined within the code. Have they impaired or impeded, basically have they prevented the other parent from having access to the children? I think that's an important one. Has a parent tried to make false reports or fake reports of domestic violence or child abuse with someone like Child Protective Services against a parent? Sadly, we also see a lot of cases where there's substance use disorder or potentially some alcoholism. That is something that the court absolutely would want to know about. If, if a parent, unfortunately, is actively struggling with addiction, that's something that the court's going to need to know about because that would have a, a huge impact on whether or not 50-50 would be appropriate. So in addition to those things, the court actually can take a look at the behavior of people that are commonly in a parent's household. So if they happen to live with other family members and there's something concerning, potentially one of their family members has a felony conviction for some kind of violent crime, that is something that the court would want to know about as a potential safety issue. Or potentially a parent is in a relationship with someone who has history of, of drug convictions or domestic violence or CPS, ch child protective services. Um, those are all things that the court want to know about. Any medical issues a child has that would require special care. If a parent has any medical condition for them to care for the child 50% of the time, as well as considering the distance between parents' houses, keeping siblings together. So those are just a couple of things. There are, I want to say, well over 20 different ways that you can challenge that 50-50 kind of starting point within the code. Courtney, we talked about a lot of ways, uh, a lot of factors that the court's going to consider in uh, overcoming that. What what burden of proof do you have to have? How do, how do you prove it? And, and what is that burden of proof? So that burden of proof is is called by a preponderance of the evidence, by, beyond a preponderance of the evidence. So that just means a little over 50%. So the court needs to be able to view the evidence and hear from both sides and just decide that they believe what you're saying just a little bit more than halfway. So it's not an extremely high burden of proof. Um, and I think that's because the court obviously wants to be able to view these matters and really keep in mind what may be in the best interest of the children, also with an understanding that, that sometimes it may be difficult to have some of this evidence available. Now, what if you have a child that's, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old, do they get to, do they get to tell the court where they'd like to live? So children over the age of 14 can express a preference in terms of what parent they would like to live with. Now, just expressing a preference from that child doesn't mean that's absolutely what the court has to do. However, the court will want to hear from children at that age. They're considered sufficiently mature to be able to express that preference. 
The code also says that if a child is not yet turned 14, but is sufficiently matured based on the court's understanding of that child, their preference can also be taken into account. So, so these older children would be able to testify and that may rebut the presumption of an equal shared division of, of custody time. What about a very young child, such as an infant, say under the age of one? So when children are that young, unfortunately, there's not really an easy way that they would be able to, to tell the judge what their feelings are. Um, also, children that young may not necessarily know what's in their best interest or have any understanding or concept of that. There is a possibility in certain cases to ask for an attorney called a guardian ad litem to be appointed. And that is truly an attorney that is appointed by the court to represent what is in that child's best interests. So if we're talking about a younger child, where you believe there's something going on in the other parent's background that may be concerning, but you can't quite gather that evidence, but you have strong reason to suspect that somebody with a little bit more ability to gather records and ask questions and interview people would be able to do so, you could request a guardian ad litem be appointed. I do want to caution though that that's not something that is as easily done in every county in our state. And depending on financial situations, it can be quite expensive. Now, let's say you don't have stable housing. Maybe you're staying with your uh, family because, you know, your relationship is is not in a good place. And that's one of the reasons that, that we're needing to file a custody action is the, the parents of, of a child are no longer living together. What about the stable housing? What impact can that have on a custody uh, order? Stable housing can be taken into account and can be a way to challenge this idea a parent should have 50-50. However, the new code is specific that if somebody has fled a domestic violence situation and they are staying in a shelter, that is not to be considered unsafe housing. As well, if somebody is staying with a family member and that is a more stable situation, I would believe that's less problematic than somebody who's maybe bouncing from friend to friend's house and really doesn't have any stability. So housing stability is going to be important, but again, I think there's a number of factors the court will take into account when determining if they think a situation's stable or not. We noted this is a change in the law. Previously, the law weighed heavily on caretaking functions. Uh, what role, which uh, caretaking or parenting functions, you know, these would be things like bathing the child, grooming the child, making sure the child's ready for school, making sure daycare set up, making sure that the house is taken care of. What impact do those sorts of things have on, on, on a custody decision now? So the court is still going to take those things into account. Typically, we're going to be looking at just the year prior, though. And the court is also going to, kind of on that same vein, want to have an understanding about whether or not a, a parent has not really been significantly involved in the child's life before this case except if that's been due to the other parent's actions in keeping that parent away. So caretaking functions are still something to be considered. There's just less of a focus on those things now. When we talk about the, the parenting plan, I guess, what, what does that look like? I mean, when we say we're going to do 50-50, does that mean, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. with one parent, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. the next morning with another parent? Um, what do those parenting plans normally look like? So typically when we're talking about a parenting plan, it's going to lay out the specific days that each parent will have the child. It's going to come up with some kind of schedule for the holidays. It's usually going to talk about where exchanges of the children will take place. If there are any other special provisions regarding a child's extracurriculars or sporting events, things of that nature. 
So in terms of what that day-to-day -day schedule looks like, typically we're not talking 50-50 doesn't mean splitting a day in half. 50-50 is usually going to be something like a week on with one parent and then a week with the other parent, depending on children's ages. Two days with one parent, then switching to two days with the other parent, and then back to the first parent for three days. So that's a two-two-three. Another one we commonly see is three days with the parent, four days with the other, and the next week, that parent who had three days in week one would have four days in week two, and then the parent who had four days in week one would have three days in week two. So there's a number of ways that, that these parenting plans lay out what the actual day-to-day -day schedule looks like. Usually they are going to have times for exchanges and things like that, just so everybody knows what schedule they're operating under that allows for planning and stability and routines. And the court will look to things like work schedule, right? If your work schedule would be more conducive to one of those arrangements as opposed to another one, you know, things of that nature may also play into that. Is that true? Yes. The court's going to consider whether or not, uh, you know, a parent who works all nights is going to have a very difficult time potentially being up first thing in the morning to be able to exchange a child. They may just be getting off work. They may still be at work or they may be asleep. So the court can absolutely look at what a parent's work schedule is. They can also look at what a child's schedule is for school. So what time does school start? What time does school let out? And are they involved in any kind of extracurricular activities? And what is the timing of those things? Now, Courtney, suppose that um, two parents agree to something that's less than an equal division of time. For example, one parent says, you know, I, I work uh, during this time and, and this won't work for me. And, and the other parent says, well, you know, I'm not working as much as you are or something of that nature. Can, can parties agree to something different than than the 50-50 shared custody? Yes, parties can reach an agreement on something that they think is going to be best for their family that might not be 50-50. That agreement usually should be set forth in writing. The court's going to want to see the specifics of that agreement and make sure that everybody understands what they've agreed to. But yes, I think it, it's important for parents to have an understanding that 50-50 may not work for everybody depending on their lives, their work schedules, and the schedules of their children. I would note the parenting plans that you mentioned can be found online at the West Virginia Supreme Court website at courtswv.gov. That's where you can see what a parenting plan looks like um, and, and work through that parenting plan. The parenting plan will also consider holidays and, and major life events such as the child's birthday or a parent's birthday, and you can work through those things as well. Do you give your clients any advice as it relates to holidays and time with the children? I like to encourage parents to really sit down and think about the past couple years. What events do they have that they routinely celebrate with their own families? And do those typically take place on the same day? I think sometimes when people look at a parenting plan, it can be a little bit overwhelming and they start filling it out without really putting that emphasis on, well, every Labor Day, I like to have a picnic with my family or every Memorial Day, we go on a camping trip. So those are the kinds of things that parents should take into account because they wouldn't want to fill out a parenting plan that the court then adopts that really doesn't consider some of those traditions that they have. I also encourage parents to think about the distance between their home and maybe their, their past significant other's home or any kind of travel they like to do during the holidays. Um, if you split a day in half, but you like to travel two hours away to see family, that makes it very difficult to do that. Now, we talk about some of the family traditions and things of that nature. What about uh, siblings or even step-siblings that may be an important part of uh, the holidays? 
Yes, so the court under under this new law and, and generally speaking, the court is going to want to make sure that children get time with their siblings to allow for that bonding and for those relationships to exist. So the court will take that into account. And what about other parties that might be around your child's life, like grandparents? Maybe they're doing some some caregiving for the child. What factor is that going to play as the court's looking at this? So the court can take into account the time that a child would be left with a third party. So if there is a parent who wants 50-50 custody, but they would routinely be leaving the child with a with another family member, typically not for an employment related purpose, that's something that the court would consider, I believe is a reason maybe not to award 50-50 custody. So it's obviously important for children to have those relationships with family members, but the court doesn't want to see where a parent has split, has shared custody and 50% of the time, but they're routinely going off and doing things without their child and leaving that child in the care of family members. Now, what if a child has a, an illness, a chronic illness, or some sort of a special needs? Um, what's the court going to do with that information? The court will absolutely want to know that because special medical conditions, and that may be certain treatments a child needs or the ability to be close to a hospital or any kind of specialized care is something that the court's going to want to know about because that might make 50-50 between parents an impossibility or extremely impractical. For instance, one parent may have specialized training in how to take care of the child's medical needs that another parent may have the ability to obtain or may not for whatever reason. So special medical conditions of the child are something that the court can absolutely take into account. When you file the, the custody action, how, how do you go about filing a, a custody action if you want to start that? If, uh, if you're not, uh, maybe you're not seeing your child or you want to make sure you get a, a plan in place that's adopted by the court. So you're going to want to complete the forms um, that you previously mentioned, Clint, on courtswv.gov, including the petition, to allocate custody, a parenting plan, and there are a couple of other forms. So once you have those completed, you're going to want to have those notarized and take those to the circuit clerk to start that case by filing. I would note that Legal Aid of West Virginia offers self-help videos on completing those forms on our website at LegalAidWV.org. Now, once those forms are completed, where would you file that? You would want to take those to the circuit clerk's office in the county where you'd be filing. So typically when we're talking about filing a custody action, it, it's not as difficult to tell which county. Usually parents are, are living in the same county and the child's resided in that county for a significant period of time. However, there are a number of factors that may impact what county somebody should file a custody action in. And in that case, I do think it would be a good idea to maybe consult with an attorney just to get those kinds of questions answered to make sure that you're filing in the appropriate county. And once you file the court action, then will the court have a temporary hearing? The court will have a temporary hearing. Now, something that that is a little bit different now under the new law is that these temporary hearings can actually be evidentiary hearings. And by that, I mean, if a parent believes that 50-50 is not appropriate and they want to challenge that idea, they will want to bring evidence about some of the factors we've talked about previously during this podcast. Evidence can be witness testimony, so people who have personal knowledge of something, um, documentation, so past protective orders, or documentation of, of past criminal cases, particularly maybe if it's a domestic violence conviction 
or a drug-related offense, photographs, copies of text messages, but I strongly encourage people to make sure that those are date and time stamped so that the court understands when the conversation took place, um, videos or other evidence. So those temporary hearings may be a time where if, a, if the other side wants 50-50 and you do not, you need to be prepared with some evidence. So coming out of that temporary hearing, the court is going to issue some kind of temporary order about custody of that child. And in that order, the, the judge is supposed to um, try their best to, to have the least disruption on the child, particularly on a temporary basis. Is that right? That is true. I think particularly because going through these custody cases can be a huge change for children. So the court's going to try to make these things as, dis as least disruptive to the children as possible. What if people had been doing something for, for a while, let's say for a year you've been separated from your partner and during that time you know, you've reached some sort of an agreement and you've been doing that and then suddenly you know, maybe there's a disagreement between the two of you about something and then, and then the child isn't being returned so you file a custody action. Will the court consider what y'all were doing for, for about that year or so? Yes, the court is going to want to know which parent has been really taking greater responsibility of caretaking and performing parenting functions of those children during the 12 months before the case was filed. So it, you should be prepared to come to court and explain that you had been operating under a certain schedule for for a whole year or maybe more at the time that that the case has been filed. Sure, and you would bring evidence to support that. Um, I, th I think you noted some of the things you might use as text messages. Uh, one thing that you might also be able to get is if the child's in daycare, there are daycare sign-in sheets that you can show who's been signing the child in. So if, if there's a claim that you had, had done something different than what you had agreed to, then you can have some of that evidence to prove that. Is that is that fair? It is, and also school records can be a great way to show that if there is record of a certain parent signing a child out or coming to parent-teacher conferences, I think those things can be helpful, as well as if a parent has kept a calendar potentially of, of the contact the other parent has had or just kind of keeps a calendar reflecting that the exchanges took place on a certain date at a certain time. And some people keep those things just for just for records purposes or to, to kind of make sure that the child has an understanding of what the schedule is. So those things can be helpful. Now, after you have the temporary hearing, the court will put in place a temporary order. Is, is that the end of it or what, what happens after that? So unless there's an agreement that is reached at some point, that typically the court's going to want to see in writing that's been signed and notarized and filed with the circuit clerk. That is not the end. You will ultimately get to a final hearing. And at the final hearing, again, you are going to want to be prepared if you haven't reached an agreement on parenting with evidence to indicate why you believe the parenting plan you're requesting is in the child's best interest, as well as evidence to challenge the 50-50 kind of starting point based upon some of the factors we've already discussed. Coming out of that final parenting plan, you are going to get some kind of schedule from the court that you are going to be following long term. So it's a it's going to hopefully be something that you can operate under for years to come. That allows for some stability for children. That allows for everyone to get back into a routine. 
Now, sometimes the court will order mediation or mediation screening. I have uh, clients that will say, well, what does that mean? So could you explain what mediation is and how that works? Absolutely. Mediation is a process where you meet with a third party who's called the mediator, and that person may or may not be an attorney, but they're going to be somebody who has an understanding of, of parenting plans, of different options under parenting plans. And the mediator will either bring bring the parties to an office and meet with them usually individually or may even meet with them virtually over something like Zoom and put the parties typically in separate breakout rooms. So the mediator's job is to start with whoever has filed usually and get an understanding of what's happened in the case. So what is the background information of the family? What do the parents do for employment? What is the child's schedule? How old is the child or children? And get that background information. The mediator is also going to get a sense from that parent of what kind of parenting plan they believe is best for their child and why. The mediator will then go to the other parents and kind of get their take on the situation and also what they're wanting. The mediator helps to find points of agreement or potential areas where they think there could be agreement and help the parties reduce some kind of agreement to writing. Now, a mediator is not going to be giving specific legal advice to you. They are not your attorney. However, they do have knowledge and they can make certain suggestions based on what you're telling them about something that may may work for you and may better kind of put into words what you're asking for. Now, let's say uh, you're in mediation and you make an offer to settle something, then, then can the other side bring that to court and say, well, you said you would agree to this and now you're asking for something different? They cannot. So any kind of conversation that takes place during mediation or some kind of settlement negotiation can't later be brought up in court as evidence that a parent would have accepted less time. Similarly, a mediator cannot be called into court to testify about the specific conversations or really anything that's taken place at mediation other than simply filing a report saying these parties did not reach an agreement or these parties reached this agreement and here, here that isn't right in. When you're in mediation, do you have to agree to everything? Is it an all or nothing, or can you agree to certain holiday schedules and then have the court make decisions on parts that you don't agree on? The nice thing about mediation is that you can agree on some things, but not everything. So if the parties have a holiday schedule, like you mentioned, that both of them feel very comfortable with, they could reduce that to writing, and the mediator could help do that, and they could they could explain to the court that they are completely fine with that holiday schedule. However, they're still not sure about what they want to do, for instance, during the school year or the summer. So there is an ability to reach as much of an agreement as possible. And that's just going to reduce the number of things that the court has to decide when you go to your final hearing. And I always caution people that the nice thing about mediation is that you have some control over what the schedule is and you have more input. So you can be a little bit more specific in crafting a parenting plan with more provisions that you think are important for your family than the, the family court judge may be able to do coming out of your hearing. And one thing I would add to the family court judge, they may pick one side as the winner and the other side, they may say, I'm going to adopt your proposal. They may say, I'm going to adopt the other proposal, or they may just do something completely in the middle that, that makes everybody unhappy. So the one thing I think that it, the, there's a lot of benefit to trying to come to an agreement when you're in that situation, if it's at all possible, would you agree with that? 
I definitely do because when you come up with that parenting plan with the other party and you're able to come to some kind of agreement, whether or not it's something that you're entirely happy with or the other party is entirely happy with, at least it's something that you've had some some control over and you've really been able to take the time to think about maybe what's best for your child. As you said, if you go to the family court judge, unfortunately, it's going to be entirely in their discretion what kind of parenting plan you end up with. So what remedies do you have if you're very unhappy with what the family court judge has done? There are a number of remedies that you have. Um, I think it's something that would be important to speak to an attorney about to understand fully what those options are. But among those, you could file a motion for reconsideration if you think that there's something that was not taken into account or something that you've become aware of. There's specific requirements under the code for when you can file a motion for reconsideration. You also have the opportunity to file an appeal of the family court decision if you believe that the family court judge's decision was incorrect in some way. And you have 30 days for whenever you receive your final order, the date that it's entered, to file that kind of appeal. And where are these appeals filed? Those appeals would now go to our intermediate court of appeals. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for your time. I think we uh, covered a lot of things here as it relates to child custody, and I appreciate your time and knowledge. Um, I think it's been very beneficial, and I'm, I'm grateful that you've taken the time to visit with us. Thank you very much, Clint. I've enjoyed it. Child custody is one of the most difficult issues you may ever face. Remember, as you go through this, you will have feelings of uncertainty and anxiety about what a custody order may look like. Remember, while you're experiencing this anxiety and uncertainty, your children are as well. You should do everything you can to ease the transition for your children. Keep their well-being at the center of every decision. You may not get as much time with your children as you would like during the process or even with a final order. What you can control, however, is to make the most of the time. However much time you have with your children, make the most of this time. Take them to the park. Push them on a swing and give them love. For more information on this topic, visit our website at LegalAidWV.org. This has been a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.